Ed, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Just jump right into it. Jump right into. We're jumping uh, in. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome, Welcome back to episode seventy nine. Is that is it seventy nine? I'm pretty sure it is, Holly. Wow, that's that's an interesting. That auspicious in some way that I no, I know I like seventy five. That's auspicious. That's like the three quarters of a hundred. You know, that feels like a big deal, and a hundred's a big deal. But seventy nine. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. You know what? Yeah. You know what happened to me yesterday was kind of funny. I uh, <laughs> I I. I help. I always offer my my assistance for the the neighborhood kids to be uh, a calculus or math tutor. I'm like, hey, anybody need some help with math? Let me know. You know, because I Love that's this. stuff I would do for fun. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, last uh, yesterday evening, uh, one of our friends' sons texted me and said, "Hey, I need help with uh, Taylor McLaurin series, which is you know a calculus thing, yeah. and 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 that's all it said." I. Uh, I need help with this series, right? And Tanya says, "Is that a book series? Is that a movie series? I'm not familiar." And then, and the, so I had to explain to Tanya what that was. Like uh, my, this, Tanya's my wife, and you know, but it's just so like deep, deep in the well, you know, yeah. deep in the well. It's just yeah, it's know. like it's like explaining quantum mechanics to somebody. Yeah, like you just like, don't. You know, you, it's not you something you do for fun. And, no. and you don't. And you don't want me to do it. No, it, no, it's nobody's going to enjoy it. I won't enjoy it because I'll do a bad job and you won't enjoy it because I'll do a bad job. And right. then neither of us will feel better afterwards. Not at all. So we're and and what's, what, what's funny, I was like, hey, well, send, send me some photos of what you're working on. So I can give you a hand. And the person says, this, the, the, the kid says, uh, well, these are pretty angry, <laughs> the problems themselves. And I'm like, oh, that is what a great description of those types of problems, you know, Pretty anytime angry. you have to, anytime I have to bring like a series or sequence to the, the problem, that's just not fun. It's not, not fun. fun. No, no, not at all. Those are, yeah, but we're deep in the uh, weeds with uh, nerd weeds, nerd weeds. Yes, we are. What are we talking about today, Scott? Today, Ollie, we are going to talk about well, we're going to talk about sort of the NRC framework. So this is the, the soup you and I have been living in lately because of oh, this professional development. Yes. We're doing. So, um, but we're going to talk about sort of the big shifts that the, the NRC advocates for. So the, for those of you who aren't familiar, the NRC, the Natural, National Research Council, um, published a, a monograph about called the K-12 uh, science education framework for K-12 science education. And within that, they basically made the evidence and research-based argument for the fundamental shifts in the ways that teaching and learning should be reconsidered and how that might help us think about a new set of standards. So it wasn't the standards, but right. it was a document laying out the foundation for the standards. Yeah, and there, then the NRC is sort of like a, uh, like a thought leader or like a research slash you know theory group that you know puts ideas out there to try to drive changes not just in science education but other things too yeah. you know they're they're out there like trying to say okay here's what the, the the research is showing us and this is the way that we think should and, it, and they've you know offered similar frameworks for other things too like similar foundational documents to like really drive changes in you know education and science and you know yeah they're they're quasi governmental governmental agency that was set up i think originally during this after the second world war but the purpose of this organization the national academies was to to basically make 
what we would call tertiary documents, right? Documents that collect bodies of research and make summative statements about them to help the field understand things, yeah. right? So, and so they name all sorts of things that they they do, like like Ali's saying, and they cover you know, all different areas of science and medicine and engineering and education related to those things. So, um, and, and they put out ones in education, you know, a couple a year, there's been one recently on teacher learning there, you know, they do, they do these things on a pretty regular basis, but they're meant to be summative documents that look over a broad span of research over a broad span of years, and then make recommendations and suggestions right. about how we should operate. And act as catalysts uh, to right. invoke change. And so that's the, this document is the thing that was the catalyst for the next generation science standards, which yeah. is the thing that ultimately was the, the, the catalyst for the, you know, individual states making their own. Right. 44, about to be 45 states that have either adopted or taken uh, them and modified them slightly. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the catalyst, right? That's the thing. That's the power of the NRC and the power of a document like the framework. Yeah. And so they lay out, you know, four pretty important shifts that have happened in, in our understanding of, of learning um, that have you know, sort of prompted the, um, the next generation science standards or a revisiting of the science standards, which promoted the next generation science standards. And we thought we'd unpack those here because this is one of the things we're, we're talking with these folks that we're doing the professional development with is like, okay, this is, these are the important shifts that have happened or that I, I mean, they, I guess they've always been there. We've just realized that research has uncovered these for us. Right. And that, right. I mean, is that a good yeah. way to frame it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. Cause like, like the, the 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 first one is that uh, one of the big shifts is that you know the development of ideas for students is these things should happen over long periods of time. They shouldn't be like okay, we're going to teach dinosaurs in second grade, and then we're going to teach something else in third grade, and teach something else in fourth grade. Developmentally, for students to really have a, a really deep understanding of things that these things should progress over years and years and years, and that we should you know build developmentally with our ideas, just like the kids themselves are developing with their understandings and their abilities too. Right. And the, and the key there is the development is not developmental psychology. We're not talking about no. kids development and the way their brains develop over time. What we're talking about is their ideas, right? Yep. And their ideas developing over time. And the big shift here <clears throat> is a movement from thinking of learning as an accumulation of facts over time to the idea that there, there are things, there are phenomenon, there are big uh, ideas that explain lots of these phenomenon. And what we're trying to do in schools is develop early versions of those phenomenon in, with young kids or explanations uh, uh, with young kids, and then have those explanations get richer and deeper and more complex and more productive and more generalizable and all the good things that good explanations do over time. But the time here being literally years, so K to 12 at a minimum sort of span. So not a unit, not a lesson. This is thinking about, yeah, kids should be talking about core ideas in science in kindergarten and first grade in ways that are appropriate and then yep. get make those things more, more and more rich and complex. Instead of just adding more facts to the fact pile, this is really trying to have a way of organizing those facts in, in the form of an explanation. The fact pile. I love fact it. Pile. 
I got one out back. It's right next to the compost, the fact pile. Yeah. Bobby, I, I, did you take the facts out? I, I can already sense that that's going to be the name of this episode. Is the fact pile. The fact pile. It's done. Or not, not the fact pile. That's probably what it should be called. Sure. sure. Yeah. But I, I think what what that leads to, though, is really the second shift, too, is that if we're going to have these ideas and explanations that develop over over long periods of time, we're revisiting concepts and revisiting students' understandings of the content, uh, concepts, that what that means is that there might be less content that we actually quote unquote cover, right? right. That That this is, I mean, this is one of those things where we always talk about, you know, less, less is more. If we're, if we do less that we can accomplish more. Well, if you walk into many science classes, classes, it's really like an inch deep and a mile wide, right? It's just like, okay, you've got it. You might see, you know, angular momentum on a test someday. And I don't want, you know, that your college teacher knowing that we never talked about it in high school. And so we got to talk about angular momentum. And even though that like is, you know, pretty deep in the weeds in in a physics classroom, um, you know, it's still it's still something that is is quote unquote covered. And so if we're going to do this, this thing, if we're going to buy into the first, you know, shift that these these are things that should happen over long periods of time, then that begets that we're going to cover. Yes. Ooh, I know. I, I sounded biblical. I was going to say that it does sound biblical. I'm just embracing my inner biblical nature. Ali, today. Ali begat. <laughs> the festa. Uh, yeah. But, it, it, that, but that's what it means. It means yeah. that we, we cover less co- content. We, you know, engage with less content. I hate that word cover that we should yeah. have an episode about like coverage. coverage. And yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, I think this is, and I think this is one of the hardest things um, well, they're all hard. So this is a hard thing about this, right? And and which is like, for example, in in physical science, there are four of these big ideas that the NRC recommends be the focus, right? So matter and its interactions, that's one. Motion and stability, forces and interactions, that's two. Energy, that's three. And then four is waves and their application in technologies for information transfer, which seems sort of highly specific, but okay. Right. I mean, the waves part isn't, but the other part is. So that's it. Like that's physical science. And by the way, that's chemistry and physics, right? That's not just physics that we just, that we just named. So like, that's a very small list. Now, obviously there's nuance within that and there's details and things like that. And that's broken out. But, but the idea is that those four things should be things that kids are talking about and getting better and better explanations of over the, over their, you know, 13 years of, of um, public schooling. Um, I would have to radical notion. I would have to perform either a series or a sequence to get angular momentum into that, those four things. <laughs> but of course you'd try. I would try. I mean, but that's the thing. You would have to really make a, one heck of a case to, to slide angular momentum in there. It wouldn't. I mean, I mean, maybe you could well, do it with energy. It's an energy thing, right? We could probably I mean, put it in there. It's, it's a force thing. Sure. But like, but that's the idea is that if that's physical science, so if those are the big four core ideas of, of uh, physical science, then, you know, that means that there are going to be topics like angular momentum that maybe just are going to be the focus of an AP physics course, right? right. That's right. where it's going to be. And, and that, 
no, these in the most of our sciences, science classes are going to focus on the development of those ideas and, and applying those to, you know, phenomena and, and explaining those phenomena and coming up with arguments and, you know, right. And but engaging the, but, in the process. But yeah. the other piece of this is that it might come up and it might come up because it depends on the phenomenon that you're trying to explain. So the, see, so the idea is like the phenomenon should, should drive the, the specifics within a, a big idea, right? So right. it shouldn't be that, okay, motion and stability forces interactions. Here's a list all the, of all the right, detailed right. things that we need to know in there. No, the idea is what are phenomenon that we can identify that have to do with motion and stability forces and interactions. And then, kids develop explanations for those. And as a part of that, in some cases, they're going to have to use angular momentum, not very often, but maybe depending on what it is, if they're describing merry-go-rounds, they might have to talk about sure. um, angular momentum. But, but generally speaking, the, the, this is the, the sort of difficult thing about the big idea thing to understand is it, they're really trying to make the argument with this document and with the NGSS that the details aren't the thing. That, that it's not the specific yeah. things that kids learn. It's these big ideas. And, and then what that gets converted into is, oh, well, I'm just going to do a crosswalk with my current standards and I'm just going to make a new, you know, I'm going to see like, oh, here's all the list of my things that are motion and stability and forces. And so that matches. And so check, I'm done. And it's like, right. oh, you just missed the whole point. Like the point but I, but isn't I, to, but for I, you to predefine all those details. But I think that's, the uh, really good lead in to the the next shift. Yeah, that's where I was going. Yeah, I, I saw. Can I do it. this one? Can I do this one? Sure. Thanks, Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the next shift is just about moving this idea that we, well, we've again we've talked about this so often, but that practice, practice. I'm, I'm talking about practice. <laughs> practice cannot be separated from the knowledge. Um, or more, maybe more saliently, the knowledge cannot be separated from the practice in which yeah. it has developed. And so when we, when we have a classroom, a science classroom that, that where you take notes and, and do tests and do all that stuff, that the knowledge that you generate there is not the same knowledge that you generate if you have a class that's actually engaged in science and engineering practices, which is to say, investigating phenomenon, building explanations, collecting data and analyzing it for that. Um, not, and that isn't just, oh, I've got this lab that kids are going to collect data and therefore I'm doing that stuff. That's not the point. The point is if they're not collecting that data to further an explanation that you haven't given them to confirm, but that they're trying to develop on their own, then what you're doing isn't science practice. It's school science, which is fine, I guess, if that's what you want to do, but you're not going to be meeting the standard. The standard is about practice. Right. And I think that, that if we're going to come back to our biblical term, it begets the idea of what the one term that, you know, this introduces is the 3d teaching, right? right. Like this is three dimensional learning, right? Is yeah. that it's, it's the content, it's science engineering practices, and it's also these cross-cutting concepts, these concepts yeah. that are these broad ideas that, you know, show up these main characters, if you will, that show mm -hmm. up in multiple places throughout science and something like, you know, scale, like scale is a pretty important cross-cutting concept that gets that that's a main character that shows up in lots of areas. Like whether we're talking about something like a, astronomy or we're talking about something like, you know, 
yeah i mean weather or anything yeah. it shows up in lots and lots of places sure. and it's whenever those characters reemerge that we have to make sure we pay play close close attention to them because these are these the really big things that scientists deal with all the time and right. yeah no yeah, matter I mean, what the field no matter what the area of science is you know these are the things that show up yeah yeah and and i think of the cross-cutting concepts like tools that students can use to help them do some of this thinking. So if they're, if they're working on a phenomenon and they're trying to understand it, well, one of the things they can say is, well, if, if I was thinking about cause and effect here, what would be the causes and effects and how could I use that to help me better understand this phenomenon? Or if I was going to look for patterns or if I was going to try and understand systems, like those things are, are they're like lenses for examining yep. the phenomenon that, that cut across, thus the name, um, the different subdomains of science. So it allows you to say like, well, everybody, no matter what the problem is, whether it's physics, chemistry, biology, earth and space science, you can always look for cause and effect. <clears throat> it doesn't matter, right? That is a thing that you can look for to help you understand what's going on with the phenomenon. Um, and the only one that everybody beefs about is matter and energy, um, because Which, it's also a... because it's also a disciplinary <laughs> core idea, we'll, right. but we'll talk about that in a different episode. We're not going to talk about that today. Um, but yeah, so the so the the third big shift is the shift towards practice and knowledge being integrated, and therefore that again that like Ali said that three D learning piece, which is yeah. that that every every time you are developing instruction, you have to think about all three of these things. Um, or, you're, or you're not meeting the standard. You're not. Or meeting, you're not meeting the standard, yeah. right? And 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 then the key thing next that that builds into is, but the details don't come from the teacher. The details come Hopefully. from the experiences and and the students, their language, their experience, their ideas. It and that's where the the fourth of our little shifts, not little shifts, big shifts, come in, which is the foundation of equity around. The idea that that kids' ideas are assets and they should be used to build the class's understanding of these phenomena. And that means they draw on their experience and they draw on their own language. And yes, Brian Brown, friend of the show, this is exactly right up his alley. Well, I, I think a little bit as, as you were describing that, I was thinking a little bit about how that this last shift has gone through so many changes over the course of our careers, right? So you and I are, you know, roughly about the same age. We've both been yep. engaging in in education and teacher education for, you know, 30, 30 years. And so um, when we both started out, it was almost like tabula rasa, right? Like students were like, like they're blank slates, they come in. And then it was like, okay, they have prior knowledge, but that prior knowledge is something that we've got to like, you know, go at eradicate like eradicate because it's a like they have this these misconceptions that we almost have to like get in there and you know just you know yeah. amputate them out right we just have yeah. to get them out out of there and and then we you know then it became okay these are the ways that we shift we create these conceptual change right yes and that the conceptual discrepant change events discrepant, discrepant events. events and that what we're trying to do is to uh confront those things but to like really mix it up and, and change it into something that is more scientifically palatable, right? Mm -hmm. But Norm now, normative. Normative. Right. But now what we're seeing is that we're 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 taking that stuff and and now looking at it not as deficits, right? 
mm-hmm. but assets for us to use in the classroom, mm-hmm. assets for us to build upon and to, 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 to pull into the, the conversation. So this, we're using terminology that students may be using. We're using their experiences. And those ex- that terminology and experiences may be very different depending on where you're teaching and what grade level you're teaching. Because, you know, every kid's experiences are different and their mm-hmm. communities are different. And that we have to make sure that, and that's where, I, and I think that this is what our teacher education program is built upon. And I would, I would say that the most important thing for you to do as a teacher is to know your kids. That's the most important thing. And not just to know them and go, okay, well, these are the things I got to like correct, but know them enough that you can tap into their, their strengths and their assets to bring into the classroom. And that's, yeah. I think is from my point of view, the one that resonates the most with me because I've seen that change happening over the course of 30 years. And, and it's something that I think is, is a value change a really critical change in how we we educate kids yeah and the way the way that i talk about that with my students and that uh ted lasso talks about it with his yeah. with his team is um be curious not judgmental right like yeah. when you're hearing a kid's idea a step, instead of assuming that that it's wrong or that it's bad or that it needs to be fixed be curious about it ask them yeah. questions about it well explain that to me i'm not i don't i'm not sure i understand what you mean by that and and let's talk through that, right? So this idea of how how that repositions the power dynamics in a classroom and, and you know builds the relationship, right? That going back to your point about this is relational work, right? You're you're talking to a kid and you're saying you're you're curious about them. Like I'm curious about your ideas. This is really interesting. Can you tell me more about that? And what that does for a kid in your class and the way that they think about themselves as a science person or not. And also just their own feeling of worth, right? You you have just by you don't have to tell them they're right. In fact, that's bad. Um, because that's being judgmental. Like the whole point, whether you're judging them right or wrong, you're still making a judgment. So the question is, can you really focus on my job here as a teacher is to be curious and to try and understand kids' ideas and then to try and push them to be more clear and more evidence-based and more you know, connected to the phenomenon that we're trying to understand and all those things, but, but not to say my job here is to correct their wrong idea. So as I'm, as I'm looking at these chefs, I'm I'm thinking, okay, if I was a classroom teacher or I was working in schools right now, which would be the heaviest lift? Mm. Like, and cause I think all of them are, are challenging. They yeah. present u- unique <laughs> challenges um, for how, school is conceptualized and how teaching of science happens. Right. Yep. Um, and so I go, okay, would it, would it be the, the, this first idea, this, you know, the developmental nature of this stuff, these ideas and concepts and arguments, because that's not how curriculum is designed, right? Curriculum isn't designed that way. And then the second one about these, you know, less is more, that's not all, that's not a thing that happens in schools either. Cause we yep. just go through these big, huge, you know, laundry lists of concepts that have to be covered. And, and, and a lot of that is, and I'm not blaming schools. I'm not blaming anybody to be Mm -hmm. clear, because these are things that come down from like, you know, department of education that say, Hey, these are the things, this accessible content. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I also, then I look at, okay. um, The third one is really about changing what happens in classrooms, not from a content standpoint, but in terms of how teachers teach. That is a really personal thing that we've talked about before in terms of, you know, people who become science teachers are usually the people who are good at science and that 
being good at science meant that they were really good at a version of science that involved, you know, sitting, probably taking tests, you know, taking notes. Um, and they've had this apprenticeship of observation where they were, you know, apprenticed into the practice of teaching by watching other people do the standard deliver thing. And now what we're saying is, hey, hold on, let's put the pause on that because that's not what we're arguing for anymore. So that's going to be a heavy lift too. Yeah. I mean, I think all these things are intertwined, so it's difficult oh, yeah. to, 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 but I do agree. I mean, all of them, I mean, I think that the foundational difficulty that I see happening here for most teachers is, is what it does to their positionality in the classroom, right? Yeah. Because it changes them from being the person who knows everything or has to know everything or feels like they have to know everything, however you want to frame that, to they are a person who is, who is um, facilitating a community who's trying to figure stuff out. And that, that is, a, it, it, um, is a huge problem, I think, you know, and maybe this is across all domains, but I certainly see it in science, is it's <laughs> the way our science curriculum, both K-12 and higher ed, develop is you are rewarded for being right. You are rewarded even more for being right first, and you're, you know, you're being you're rewarded even more for being right first and fast. So all of those things right. fight against. So so your job as a teacher, then you feel like you have to be right and you have to be right all the time. And if that's your position, if you're if you're positioning yourself as the person who has to be right, and if you're not right, then you feel like you're not being a good teacher or you're not good person or, you know, there's all this psychology buried around this. That is a big change to say, like, my job here is not to be right. I, 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 I try not to be right. My job is, again, to, to be curious. And, and that judgment goes in many directions, right? It's not just judging kids' ideas. It's judging yourself. It's judging everything. Like, can you be curious about your own reasons for your resistance to this? Why is it that you feel like you have to be right? Like, what is it that that is pushing you as a teacher to make you feel like, I have to be right here. I, I'm, I'm the teacher, and therefore, I have to know and be right. Um, when, you know, I think one of the things that we know from our own experiences with working with teachers is oftentimes when you ask them to explain phenomenon, it, they have a difficult time doing it because yeah. the school system, not because they're not smart or right or whatever, but because the school system isn't designed to help them learn how to explain things. That's yeah, not what they do. They start to list, well, here are the concepts that are yeah. there. Exactly. Yes. And it's oh, like, this well, is just PV equals NRT. I got this. Right. Yeah. And that that equation doesn't lead it. I mean, it may be part of the explanation, but it's, you know, yeah. it is not the explanation. It is right? not the explanation. It is. It is a, a, a broad um, guideline that helps you think. It's a tool yeah. that you can use in lots of contexts, um, and it's powerful, but you have to know when and how to use it. Otherwise, it's not so powerful at all. Like, it's sort of useless, right? If all you know is that this is another algebra equation where there are variables, and I just have to seek out the right variables to put in the right place and, and crank through to an answer that that doesn't provide much understanding about what that what that equation is talking about which is really about molecules right and their relationship to each other and the space around them and 
and what that does to the the speed of those molecules and uh, how how much and how uh, often they're impacting the thing that they're inside or or around, right? So that's what PV equals NRT is really about. But that's not the way we teach it to kids. We teach it to kids no. as a law, and it, right. that's one of the laws, right? So that means it's it it, it is written in stone. It is not an explanation. It's a law. And then you just crank and plug and chug and that. But, but I think what, what these coming back to the biblical term, what they beget, right. Is yeah. I know three begets in one episode. That's a lot of begetting. I, I know. But what it, what it does is it leads to different understandings of science, not just in our students, but also in society. Right. And I think that, you know, that curiosity, that idea that, you know, these ideas develop over long periods of time would have helped us better deal with things like global pandemics, right? I mean, not to, you know, harp on this again, but, you know, these, our understanding of this thing is still developing. And I think that lots of people who have been the the folks who might be science resistant are the Mm. folks who think that if we knew what we were talking about, we'd already have the answer because that's how science works. Right. Science is a law. Science is an explanation. Science is, you know, we should be able to name these things. And whenever, I mean, and it, for, for those of us who are engaged with science, this was a really great time to see science on, the, on display because we got to see how things, you know, there was constantly research being talked about in like the public discourse. Hey, these are experiments that have been happening. This is what learning about this. And what that did to all of us is like, oh, we're, we're building an understanding of this. What it does to other people is like, well, they don't know what the heck they're talking about. Right. You know, and and whenever things were changing, when we're like, okay, you know what, we're realizing, okay, we don't have to quarantine for 14 days, we have to quarantine to 10 days, we have to quarantine for seven days. That's based on our understanding, our the you know, our understanding of this thing. And others are looking at it like, well, if they knew they would have already made it seven days. Well, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Our our understanding has changed over the course of two years. And yeah. and I think it 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 is due in part to how we teach these concepts. It is in due, due in part to how we teach this big pile of facts, right? Yeah. If we teach it that, if we teach science as that, then if things aren't fact-based, if they're still developing, if their understanding is changing, then they go, well, obviously they don't know what the heck they're talking about. Right. But- yeah. Well, I mean, I would say it's stronger than you said. I, I, I would say this is the problem with the way that we teach science is that if we taught science the way that the NRC is recommending based on these shifts, what kids would experience in school is their ideas constantly changing about these big ideas, like as they get more information, as they learn more, as they get more sophisticated, right? So from kindergarten through 12th grade, they would be increasingly seeing like, oh yeah, like I thought I understood how how plants and animals grow, um, but I didn't understand it very well because I didn't understand all this other stuff that was deeper in the stack than what I originally learned. And, and, and so this idea that we never are fully going to understand, right? Like we have an understanding of the world right now and it is what it is. Right. And in some areas we have a pretty robust and clear understanding of that. And in other areas, there are a lot of things we don't know. And so 
And, and, and the only way we figure those things out that we don't know is we come up with sort of um, not very great explanations in the beginning, but keep testing them and making them better. Like that's the definition of science is let's, let's get an initial explanation out there. Let's see how it holds up against the evidence and then come back to the explanation and say, here are the places where it's not holding up against the evidence that we're finding. How do we make it better? And if we had 13 years of that, instead of what we have now, we would be having a very different discourse right. about COVID right now, because we'd be saying, here is our current understanding of the virus. Here's how it behaves. Here's what we think it does. Here's the evidence we have. And now two weeks later, Hey, we, we have more evidence. And so we're going to change the explanation. Yep. We're not going to stick with the same old explanation because now we have new evidence that helps us change it. Yeah. So it's, it's not just, Hey, here's how we drive science instruction. It's how we drive public discourse around science. Yeah. And yeah. it's one of the, one of the things that I think the, the other thing that, that all these shifts mean that are important that, that are, I don't know how I'll describe it, but it's, they, is that these are for everybody, right? Like everybody needs to learn science this way because the scientists can go off and learn their fancy high-end whatever science. And even in high school, like we've talked about, you mentioned this briefly, but we can come back to this. This isn't, this isn't saying we don't want AP tests or, or, well, we don't, maybe we don't want AP tests, but we don't, we may not, we're not saying there shouldn't be advanced classes in science where you, where you learn a lot of this stuff, but that isn't the kind of science instruction that we want as a fundamental baseline for everybody. Right. And even the people who are going into science need to have this same baseline because they need to understand how science operates if they're going to engage in it. Right. So in, to some degree, it's more important for them that that we revamp science. But the bonus is that everybody gets a better understanding of the way that science actually works instead of seeing it as this pile and collection of facts over time. And those facts are always true. Like the facts that I learned in kindergarten are just are true. And the facts I learned in high school are true. There's I just have a bigger pile of facts. And so they view science that way. So when we come out with a with an uh, or the CDC or the government comes out and says, here are the current our current understandings, they treat those as the facts they got in kindergarten. And then you come back later and say, oh, no, here's what here's what we now understand. And they don't say, oh, well, that's just a more sophisticated, more evidence based explanation. They say, wait, you're telling me the facts that you gave me before were wrong. And these are new facts. And now what? Yeah. that's not possible. So all your facts must be wrong because yeah. the facts that you gave me before were wrong. Yeah, You don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. Practice. Practice. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Good times. Good times. Well, this, I think, is is a good you know place for us to kind of like, you know, pause for a, a few yeah. minutes because i think this is going to lead into some of the other conversations we're going to have in the next couple episodes because we're going to talk about the the framework and how the framework is going to change our perspectives not just on you know shifting how people learn and how we teach science but what that specifically means in terms of these these cross-cutting concepts and science and engineering practices and the disciplinary core ideas and that whole lexicon of new verbiage that we're going to learn yeah verbiage um, verbiage, verbiage and nounage yeah learn lots of new words words yeah yeah that's awesome yeah. well so joys you got any yeah joys there i want you to go first because you have a big joy face on so i want to uh, hear your big joys well Come i will on. say i will say this like so um there you know our campus does these things called 
uh, campus learning communities or faculty learning communities. And when, when they all, the, someone will select a book and then gather to, to read. And, and while I, I, I don't have the time this semester to engage in a, uh, a learning community like that, I saw that somebody had recommended a book or was going to lead one around a book called Creating Wicked Students. And I thought that, oh, that sounds oh, like an interesting table. Nice. Uh, um, Creating Wicked Students, Designing Courses for a Complex World. It was mm. by Paul Honstead. And I will say that... Um, I was ready to bail on the book. I read the first like mm-hmm. three or four chapters and I'm just like, okay, this is like pedagogy 101. It's like, Hey, you need to have learning objectives. Hey, you really? need to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of stuff. And the first three or four, um, first three or four chapters were like, meh. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll just give it a, you know, it's an easy read. I mean, it's like probably like 180 pages and it's written in really accessible ways. So I was like, okay, I'm just not going to bail on it. Let me see if this thing turns a corner. And I would say where I felt like this book was uh, beneficial for me is not necessarily for um, not necessarily for me to change my practice, but necessarily for me to, to think about practice, right? Practice. Um, what they were talking about um, how we organize courses that, and, I, and this is the first time I actually saw this in print. Hey, you don't have to follow the textbook. Like, I know we <laughs> That's say the that. first time you've seen it in print. That's easy possible. Well, I mean, think about it. Like where else have you seen it? Like, where have you seen somebody give that sort of permission? Like that permission? Yeah. Hey, like we say it, like yeah. we say it and we say, look, you know, you can organize your content. However, but the, th- this chapter five, he talks about like, all the different ways that you can organize your content over the course of a semester, over the course of the academic year. And it's like, yeah, these are really great ways of framing this. And I think for a lot of my colleagues, that might be really revolutionary. And to see that in print and to see that, and that was for me, like, I was like, okay, well, if, if at least they get to that chapter, I just going to rip that chapter out and hand it and say, look, you don't have to follow, you don't have to follow the textbook. Yeah, you could teach chapter one at the end of the semester if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah look at that. You know, I, but, but I think that because for me, whenever I teach, I'm always doing that. I'm like, I'm not, I'm like going, okay, how do I organize this based on the development of ideas or, you know, when people need stuff or whatever? Like, there's lots of things I consider as I'm developing uh, a semester. Um, but this is the first time I've seen it in print where they're just like giving folks the permission. And, and I would argue, can you think of a time like where you've seen that? Like, hey, you know, I don't know. I, maybe, it seems no, pretty I basic. Yeah. It seems pretty basic, yeah. you know, and, and you and I would advocate that with our students, yeah. you know, and, and when they're developing units or developing, you know, curriculum. But like, yeah, I was I thought that in itself was worth the price of admission or the I don't know, whatever it was, the $18 this book was, you know. Okay. Creating Wicked Students by Paul Honstead. All right. There you go. Or you could just write the sentence down. You don't have to follow the textbook. <laughs> That's an alternative to spending $18 and 180 pages. Yeah. Or, you know, rip out the, rip out that one chapter. But if not, if you're not going to follow it, uh, the, you know, the book, then yeah. what do you do instead? Paul Hansett has some ideas. Oh, does he? Okay. He does. He's not not just tearing things down. He's also building things up. Yes. All right. Good man. All right. Uh, So the thing I am going to say is as far an opposite to what you just described as I can possibly imagine. Oh, uh, do tell. Do tell. Because (laughs) it is absolutely the most juvenile and stupid thing, um, but it brought me a lot of joy. Last Friday, I went 
to the theater and saw Jackass Forever. And there are many people who may be saying, wait, Scott, you don't seem like the kind of person who would be a Jackass fan. Well, au contraire, mon frere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it was, uh, it, I mean, I'm not a chapter and verse kind of Jackass guy, but I certainly enjoyed this film. It was, it was stupid, to, but that's the point of it, is sure. that it's stupid to the point of, um, you know, I don't know, absurdity, really. Um, and that these, these uh, it's now, they've added new people, so it's both men and women um, involved in this hilarity. And, you know, it's just, I mean, it's the kind of thing where they, like, stack a bunch of people up, like, laying on top of each other, and then they put a wooden uh, a plank on them and then they ride things off of them. So they call this the human ramp. So this is the kind of stuff that they do. Right. And, and, uh, or they build a giant slippy slide and then a ramp at the bottom. And then beyond the ramp is just like dirt and rocks. And so these people like physically punish themselves in horrible ways. And yet somehow it's hilarious and you laugh the whole time. So, I, I, I this is I, definitely not for everyone. <laughs> I want to be clear. This may not be for you. Well, I will say that for me, I've I've watched my share of of Jackass over the years, but when it dips yeah. into the scatological, I always have like there's always yeah. some you know yes scatalot yeah, and there's a lot of uh, uh, male genital stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. Abuse, mostly abuse of the male genitals. They have, you know, one of their standards is um, the what they call the cup test, where they put a guy in a in a cup like a protective. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cup. Every, hopefully everybody knows what that means. And then they they, uh, you know, in this in this instance, they have a, a professional hockey player um, shoot a hockey puck at the person or they have a woman wow. who's a who's a softball pitcher, uh, pitch a softball at the person, or, um, you know, they have, they get a heavyweight boxing champion who, who has the most powerful recorded punch to punch the person. So this is the sort of, uh, you know, wow. I think yeah. that I, I mean, I'm a little embarrassed I'm to speechless. say this. I'm speechless. I know. I, know. I, I am speechless, but I have to say like, it, it, when we are in a world right now where everything is so serious to go and see a movie that like had like they they do not pretend that this is serious work they do not they this is like a, a group of friends who like to watch each other hurt themselves and uh and then they film it wow yeah was that was that theater packed was there a lot of people there no no it was not packed yeah. But um, but we you know, the nice thing is the local theater now has those reserved seats with like the recliners. Yeah. the And so it was yeah, it was it was a nice experience. And it was it was just, you know, yeah, it was stupid. I don't I'm not actually recommending anybody else go see this film because but if it brought you joy, that's all that matters. If it brought you right. joy. Thank you. Ali. Why? I will say this like here's a just because you brought it up like these the, I, I go to theaters that a couple of theaters locally who you could reserve your own seats and they have those recliners and things. But there's always inevitably those people who bring blankets, you know, they bring their slippers. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, like that is a bridge too far yeah, from me. This is not your living room. It is not yeah. your living room, you know. And yeah. and while I like a, a a recliner and I like the you know the big space and you can reserve your own seat, yeah, yeah I just have a little bit of trouble with that. So yeah, while no. I, I'm I'm glad it brought you joy. Yeah, um, thank you. 
It's yeah. it, it's sort of like the people that get on an airplane and flip flops and then kick their flip flops off and like put them up on the seat and curl up and you're like, that's not right. Yeah, like you don't do that. Like yeah. this isn't this is not your living room. It is not your living room. <laughs> that there's a podcast. This yeah. is not your living. This room. is not your living room. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, today shifts yeah. shifts in the education shifts, shifts in science shifts in practice practice. Yeah, from the NRC and you know, yeah, yeah I'm glad you're here. Catch you we're next glad time. You're here. In yeah. between. Catch you next time. See ya.